I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. Well, I'm settled into my new digs in Las Vegas. This is my new studio I'm broadcasting from. Thank you for joining me and sticking with me during this cross-country move and the one-week hiatus that I had. Again, my shows will be coming out every two weeks. I am lining up lots of guests for you, and I may have more than one show every two weeks, maybe three a month. We'll see. I kind of like this music. Reminds me of Vince Guaraldi. Peanuts. Can you see Snoopy dancing? I can. Well, I hope you like it. It's a little bit of a change, but I thought given that I'm now out in Vegas, it'd be uh, appropriate for the show. It's kind of like Carson moving from New York City to Burbank. Well, didn't quite do that. Uh, and I'm not Johnny Carson. I moved from Wilmington, Delaware to Las Vegas. But anyway, my guest today, at long last, I'm glad to have this gentleman on the show, Carl Kiesel. He is the creator of the Con L Superboy from back in the 90s, Section Zero. His last successful Kickstarter. Today we talk about his latest Kickstarter, Impossible Jones, which is ending soon, so pay attention. Carl's going to talk all about it, but first we're going to talk about how he became interested in comics, why he decided to become an inker, and of course, the fun questions that I ask all my guests, which makes Creator Talks what it is. A show about getting to know the creators behind the books you love better. Did you know that Carl loves to cook? And he's had dinner parties? Oh, well, you're going to want to hear this. It's great. So let's get started with Carl Kiesel, here now on Creator Talks. Carl Kiesel, welcome to Creator Talks. Chris, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. This is the inaugural call from Las Vegas, so welcome. <sighs> You are also a transplant from the East Coast. Why you decide to move from the East to Portland? Two reasons. I had a very good friend, Ron Randall, who lived in Portland. Ron and I went to the Kubert School together. And, uh, you know, he broke into the business about a year before I did. We were friends. We, you know, became better friends. And uh, he moved back to Portland. And he just kept saying, you should move to Portland. You should move to Portland. And my first wife, uh, Barbara Randall Kiesel, who I met when she was an editor at D.C., she really disliked New York City and living on the East Coast. She, she was a California girl. And so she wanted to live on the West Coast. And I, I liked the northern part of the country northwest northwest and all of a sudden you know it was like portland we came out here uh, and looked around in 88 and decided to give it a go and in 89 we actually moved out here and uh i still live in portland 30 years later wow we've wanted to move out here for retirement purposes but then we're just like oh let's do it everything's in the right position right timing so we came out here i came out here first uh, last week, the advance party to get things set up, get the furniture in, the Wi-Fi working, et cetera, et cetera. So I've done that. Uh, as of this call, this time, I'm going back tomorrow morning to get the family, empty the house, and then bring everybody back. And it's been interesting. Um, I went to DMV, get my license, and they give you a paper one. They stamp void, like a punch hole, into your ID. So I have to wait for my actual license. Wow. And I'm like, uh... I got to get on the plane. I'm glad I have my passport. Otherwise, oh. there could be a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Oh man, but it is wonderful out here in the West. I'm sure my wife, after struggling with keeping control of the kids, trying to work from home and also get the house cleared out, will be very happy to see that I have things all set up for her so she can just come in and enjoy. Wonderful, wonderful. I just want to talk a bit about your previous work and how you got started. Uh, not to go over your whole resume, but just some things, you know, I can't help it. I got to bring it up because my listeners are going to be like, Chris, why didn't you ask about that? I mean, I'll discuss things with you that I have read and that I'm familiar with. You started as an anchor, which is interesting because there are not many people now who go out and become an anchor per se. You know, everyone has to be jack of all trades. But back then, you started with inking. Why inking? The blame or, or praise goes to an old college roommate of mine. And uh, because, you know, I wanted to get into comics, I was interested in all aspects of the comics, writing, penciling, inking. And, uh, you know, I went to the Kubert School. I, you know, I actually stopped going to the Kubert School after one year because I saw that there were a lot of people a lot more talented than me who were trying to be cartoonists. And uh, so I went to a, a, a fine arts college for the next three years. The thing is, I was always cartooning. I was always drawing. And, and it became clear to me, really, that's where my heart was. So I, I set my sights on breaking into comics. And it was one of my college roommates who was looking at my drawing and he said, you know, I really love your ink line. And as soon as he said that, I thought, maybe that's my way in. Maybe inking is how I can get my foot in the door. Because uh, to this day, I still have problems with that blank page. You know, even working from a script, even if it's my own script or anything, that blank page is a killer. It really is. I work very slowly anyways, but when I start doing penciling, I work really slowly. And uh, so inking was something I could do fairly quickly and, uh, and fairly well. And, you know, I did. It got my foot in the door very fairly quickly. You know, within a year of moving to New York City after college, I was working full time as an inker. So I, I consider that a win. Who were some of your favorite inkers at the time and, and why? Like as people and their technique, what did you like about their inking? My biggest influence would undoubtedly be uh, Milton Kniff. I, I, I've just loved his work forever. Ever since I discovered it, actually, I should say, in the Kubert School. It was the first time I really studied and, and saw and was exposed to Kniff's work. And I was just floored by it. Storytelling, you know, the writing that he was doing, the patter, the, he had just great dialogue between his characters. And that wonderful brushwork that was so lush and uh, and so vivid and I really fell in love with that and really became you know uh, to this day I, I still use a brush almost exclusively there there, there are times when I, I, I almost challenge myself to do a whole page with only a brush every single line and so Kniff was always a huge influence on me and looking around at the time you know you can see the line from Kniff to Joe Sinnott pretty easily Sinnott's a, a big brush guy too and I really loved what he did on Kirby especially in you know the Fantastic Four days and, you know, and then there were other contemporaries, you know, who, who were in the industry, you know, you know, maybe 10 years before me, you know, like the Klaus Janssen, uh, the Terry Austins. Those those were amazing people. Their styles didn't really influence me, though. I just really admired their work tremendously. Who was the first person when you were reading comics that you recognized their name as a creator? Because way back, you didn't know who really worked on the books. I mean, it wasn't necessarily in the first page of who the contributors were. Later on, that became much more common. But when did you first recognize, which one was it that you said, aha, was it Kniff? Uh, well, no, I didn't recognize, you know, I wasn't exposed to Kniff stuff till I was at the Cubert School. And I'd been reading comics for many years before that. Um, you know, I started reading comics regularly in, in 69. When I was 10 years old, my family took a cross-country road trip for a whole month, for the whole summer. That was a great trip, but you know, sitting in a car for 10 hours a day is really boring. Mm -hmm. And at that point, at that point in history, you, you know, when you stopped at gas stations, they had spinner racks. 
And uh, I would I started picking up comics, and we were on the road long enough that I could get two or th- even three issues of a comic in a row, and and I got hooked. But getting back to your question, though, I think the first person that I, I really took note of and really sought out afterwards was Neil Adams. I mean, this was when Neil Adams was doing the X-Men. I was really, really infatuated by his work. I was just stunned by it. Yeah, he was probably the first person I began to really search out. You know, and, and shortly after that, you know, that was about the time Kirby moved over to DC and they made a big thing about Kirby. And I noticed, oh, he's not on Fantastic Four anymore. And, and Kirby has such a distinctive style. It was very clear to notice his absence. You know what I mean? But, uh, but I think those are the first two. And, and it's very interesting because I was really attracted to Neil Adams. And I think like everyone my age was at that point in history because he was doing such breathtaking work and it was it was so new in the industry. But, you know, I actually grew, grew and I've gotten out over this. But there was there was a time in my life when I actually really disliked Neil Adams, too. I had this like opposite reaction after a while. It was like a, when all of a sudden there's that like snap back against someone. That That's how I felt. Because after Neil Adams became popular, that sort of realism took over comics. And when I got old enough to realize the diversity in art styles that existed before that, you know, and not that he did this on purpose, let's face it, but I began to resent that realism had just taken over comics. And I missed, when I got older, I, I missed that there was no room for a C.C. Beck anymore, that there was no room for a Will Eisner anymore. As, you know, as I got older and exposed to this stuff, and I really fell in love with the diversity of style. And granted, comics... You know, they've come full circle. There's a huge diversity of style nowadays. But there was a time, like in the 70s, that realism was it. Your first comics, were those the ones you picked up on that road trip? Were they X-Men and Fantastic Four, things like that? Yeah, they definitely were X-Men. You know, I, I know I was picking up, like, uh, the Neil Adams Sauron issues of X- oh, X-Men. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, they were great. Oh, they were fantastic. great. I also remember, you know, I was getting Fantastic Four there from about issue 80 on, you know, uh, but but around issue 80 is about the first time I started reading Fantastic Four, which had uh, had the Doctor Doom prisoner story, which was clearly a ripoff of the prisoner TV series. But having never watched the prisoner TV series, I thought it was dramatically original. <laughs> and still to this day, quite honestly, the three parts Skrull takes a slave where Ben is kidnapped by Skrulls and then goes to a, a planet of gangsters to be <sighs> editor. I love that mm-hmm. story. Me I too. love that story to pieces. Me too. When I first read that, it was coming out in Marvel's Greatest Comics as a reprint. Uh-huh. And I would go to the local drugstore and buy it. And I couldn't wait to read the next issue. I was just as excited reading that issue of Fantastic Four, that reprint, as I was the one that was currently on the racks. Because wow. I, I just love that Kirby art. And I think at that time, weren't they doing the larger art? Like it was like a larger... Um, no, no. By that point, it was back. It was down to the ten by fifteen okay, art. Uh, okay. um, I don't know the exact date. You know, you'd have to talk to like Kurt Busiek or Mark Wade. They would know exact dates. <laughs> but you know, sometime in like FF sixties, seventies. You know, the the issue numbers. Sometime in the sixties or seventies, they switched over the size of the art, and I'm not sure exactly when. Well, getting back to your work, though, one of the most important things you did was the creation, along with Tom Grummet of Connell. Connor, the clone of Superman. And this was a huge time in comics. The industry was exploding, and that death of Superman, I don't think anything has hit the headlines as big as that. To the general public, outside of the movies today, everybody heard about that. And then that reign of Superman that broke out from that, you had a very big hand in that, bringing back that character of Superboy, but as a new character, 
newly created by you. As I've said many times, I owe my entire career to Mike Carlin because he, he called me up and said, ah, we're killing Superman and uh, Jerry Jerry's decided to take a break and, and how would you like to write Adventures of Superman? And, and I thought about it for a day uh, because Superman was, yeah, we were selling okay. Um, and I was trying to figure out the finances and, oh, you know, I might get a couple hundred dollars royalties. That's that's pretty good. And, and so, yeah, 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 Mike, I'll take this job. And, you know, it changed my life. That was just being in the right place at the right time and having, having the right person, you know, give me the call. I was just very lucky is what it comes down to. Well, it was an incredible time because it was just in the news and people buying multiple issues. And that enthusiasm kept on for quite a while with the uh, reign of Superman. You know, thankfully and, and rightfully, you know, Superman you know, still has, you know, high points. You know, I think right now there's a lot of interest in what Bendis is doing, you know, and I'm glad that they can do that with Superman and he deserves it. Like, you know, he is the most iconic superhero ever. One of the things you worked on with a host of other creators was the wedding album Superman issue. And I got that as a wedding present. My wife received that from her maid of honor, both the regular and special edition covers. And of course, you were a contributor to that issue, along with John Byrne and many others. Yeah, many others. Yeah. You know, that was a real, um, you know, real honor and a real pleasure to be involved with. I mean, I have to say, Superman was never my favorite character. So I don't have real strong opinions from my fan days about him. I have grown to um, understand him since I worked on him for many years. And really, appreciate him much more than I ever did as a fan. I know there were a lot of people who had a lot of problems with Superman getting married, but I really thought it was a great idea. I really liked the idea of Lois being treated as an equal to Superman. I, I just thought that was a really exciting idea. And I also really liked the idea that they could be the William Powell and Myrna Loy of comics. They could be the Thin Man team. And that's how I always wrote them, quite honestly. You know, I haven't read the Superman comics lately, but aren't they still married now? I think they are. I, I'm not reading them currently, but I, I really like that issue. Uh, there was a, I think, a Lois and Clark mini series they did a while back. They got rid of the new 52 Superman and brought back the other one, and they were married in that book. So that was one of my favorites, too. I think that's the one Dan Jurgens was writing, and that was the one the fans reacted to. And I think that's why that's the template that they, they are still following today, if I'm not mistaken. There's not a lot of married characters out there, and there's not a lot of married characters that, I don't know, Lois and Superman, Lois and Clark, however you want to put it, they just really fit so well. I enjoy them as a married couple, let me put it that way. You know, I have nothing, no problem with that. I think Spider-Man, Mary Jane, Peter, Mary Jane, I like them being married. I thought that was great. So to me, it doesn't inhibit the story in any way. I mean, I know that uh, they don't want him like anchored down being married, but just think about the incredible stories you can tell, the, the relationship and all the the conflicts that they have and how they support each other. I mean, to, why take that away? That's life. That happens, yeah, yeah, you I know? know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying, although I, I actually disagree with Spider-Man in that I actually think almost every character in the Marvel Universe would benefit from aging in real time mm. because the Fantastic Four could be a real family. There would be children. There would be grandchildren. You know, Thor would be actually immortal. He could, like, regret that his friends are getting older around him. Yeah. You know, Iron Man, different people can wear the Iron Man uniform. The Avengers, their ro roster can change. So, so can the X-Men. And, uh, you know, Daredevil, I don't know what would happen with Daredevil, but Spider-Man is a real tough one. And at least to me, since I, I'm, I have a real classic history with the character, you know, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, they, they've certainly moved away with it, you know, with the, the Spider-Verse stuff. But to me, Spider-Man is the most iconic character Marvel has. You know, he is really the, um, the epitome of teenage angst. That's what he is. And as the epitome of teenage angst, he should stay young and he should stay unmarried. That's my feeling about Spider-Man personally.
Well, you make a good point, and that's what they did with Into the Spider-Verse, really. I mean, they brought back all of their kinds of Spider-Man, too, but it's the Miles Morales. It's the young Spider-Man again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I did a uh, a Fantastic Four annual where I kind of played with this. I, uh, I did, This was, like, yeah, 98. I did a Fantastic Four annual where Ben was zapped into an alternate reality where all of the Marvel characters had aged from the, from 1961 on. And the way I got around Spider-Man was I, I, I said he had disappeared. <laughs> because... because <laughs> like by my own personal philosophy there was no way he should have aged so i just you know i had him disappear so that he would always remain young in everyone's memory of it. two other things before i get to your current work one you mentioned ben which i understand you had a hand in identifying him as jewish i had a hand in it yeah uh tom brevoort was putting together a number of fill-in issues of the Fantastic Four. And uh, he said he didn't want to do fill-in stories, though he wanted them to be important stories. And uh, I said, well, you know, Jack Kirby, you know, he drew Ben in a yarmulke. And uh, we we could reveal that he's actually Jewish, you know. Tom said, let's do it. And yeah, I think, it, I think that issue came out really well. I'm very proud of that issue. The character you mentioned was Daredevil. And I have to say that when Daredevil had that armor in the 90s, I was turned off. But when I saw your book with that Mr. Hyde on the cover, I was mm-hmm. back on the series and reading it. I think that's the first time I ever read your work. I remember reading it that I went out and bought it myself, and I was really excited about that. It wasn't a long run. I mean, it was a decent-sized no. run, but it was, you know, it brought him back to me, to the Daredevil that I loved from the Silver Age. Not to take away from Miller. Believe me, I love his stuff, but that's what I really identified with, and any memories of that Daredevil gig and trying to bring him, in my opinion, back on track into the red costume? Well, uh, that was, you know, Bob Harris gave me the call and Bob Harris said that they wanted to make him a swashbuckler again. I was down with that. I was all for that. I mean, my very favorite issues of Daredevil are the, you know, Stanley into the Roy Thomas, Gene Colan period, yes. especially, especially the Mike Murdoch section. Yeah. I- I love when Daredevil had three identities. It was just so wacky. They were doing the weirdest stories back then. Daredevil switches bodies with Dr. Doom. What is Mm -hmm. going on in Mm -hmm. this book, you know? Um, Daredevil disguises himself as Thor. How could he ever convince anyone he is Thor, you know? They were just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what would stick. It was a really wild and uh, madcap time in the book, and I love it. I love it. And uh, I did not quite go back to that in my run. You know, I certainly enjoyed, you know, returning him to a more lighthearted, optimistic character. I think that's one of the interesting things about Spider-Man is he can be funny, but he's a spider, so he can be scary too, right? So I think that gives the character a wide range to work in. And I think Daredevil's the same. He can be funny, but he's a devil. And that imagery has really strong iconic um, power. So, you know, yeah, you can do the um, Frank Miller stuff, but you can also do the swashbuckler stuff. And uh, that's what I love about, you know, a lot of uh, the best characters have that sort of flexibility. But, you know, in Daredevil's case, particularly. Now I know why I love that run so much, because I, too, read and still have and have collected those Stanley, Gene Colan, Tom Palmer runs. I mean, they're, they're just wonderful. I love those. Now, getting into the Kickstarters, your last one, Section Zero, is now out through Image, Shadowline. So it's being published now. I have both copies sitting here. In fact, those were the first comics I picked up when I got to Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> issues, issues one and two. And of great taste. <laughs> They're excellent. Issues one and two are out. Number three, I believe, is coming up shortly as of this interview. If it wasn't out last Wednesday, it's certainly out this Wednesday. I got my advanced copies. That's all I know. That you did with Tom Grummet. And you initially tried that through, I believe, Guerrilla Comics. That didn't quite work out, so you did the Kickstarter eventually. You know, back in 2000, uh, Tom Grummet and I were involved with Guerrilla Comics, which was an imprint of Image. Uh, along with, uh, you know, great creators like George Perez, Kurt Busiek, Mark Wade, And for various reasons, the Gorilla line did not last very long. We had some financing we thought was going to come our way. It didn't, blah, blah, blah. And I was not in a position at that point to continue working on a creator-owned comic that did not pay my bills. So I had to shelve uh, Section Zero uh, at the time and, you know, and take on paying gigs for Marvel and DC again. But Tom and I, you know, Tom and I, first of all, we love working together. Uh, I can't think of anyone else I've worked with uh, more than I've worked with Tom. And the reason is, is we're very in, in sync with each other. We understand, um, you know, the language and the type of comics we want to do is very similar. And, and at the same time, we can, you know, keep each other honest and uh, and improve each other. You know, he can say to me, I think you're going a little far with this scene. And I can say to him, what, what if we, you know, pulled back on this panel so we see the, saw a little more or zoomed in a little more? We, we've got a really great give and take between us. Uh, our collaboration is is very uh, exciting and invigorating for me. And uh, so, you know, after the years on Superboy, we, you know, we tried Section Zero, it didn't work, but I really wanted to work with him again. So we just kept trying to figure out how to bring it back, how to bring it back, how to bring it back. And we tried a number of different ways until finally Kickstarter. And that raised enough money that we could finish the book. It took us a lot longer to finish the book than we thought it would, but we got it done. We got it in people's hands. Then, uh, you know, Jim Valentino, who was always a big supporter of the book, even back in 2000 when it was part of the Gorilla line, you know, Jim Valentino said, you know, if you want to serialize this through image, you know, I'm, I'm your man. We can do it. And, uh, you know, and so that's what we're doing right now. And uh, knock on wood. If this works, that's what we'll continue doing in the future is Tom and I would kickstart a hardcover. And then about a year after the hardcover comes out, Image would release it as a miniseries. You know, this is a very uh, typical publishing business plan. Hardcover, a year later, paperback. We don't know if it's going to work yet. We really don't know if it's going to work yet. But, uh, you know, quite honestly, that's part of the things I love about Kickstarter is no one's really figured it out yet. And the rules... The ground is a little uncertain and you, you keep trying new things and what works for me may not work for Ron Randall or may not work for, you know, this person over there. But uh, but Kickstarter is very exciting that way. It's, it's like discovering a new country. It's really exciting. It's the Wild West. <laughs> no, I think the Wild West is a great description for it. You're making up your own rules to a large degree. One thing I can say, though, is that when you do a Kickstarter and you're successful, as you have been, one thing it tells the publishers is that, Look, there's an audience for this, a dedicated audience. So the chances of success doing it in a paperback edition or miniseries is greater. Well, I would like to think so. <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, we'll just have to see, you know, Tom and I did kickstart the second Section Zero book. It was Section Zero 1959, which is, you know, more or less the origin of Section Zero. We go back to the early days of the team. And that was funded and we're working on it right now. And Jim said that he is interested in having that come out through Image. So once again, if we can just keep this going, if we just walked up to Jim, you know, Jim would probably say, yes, I would love to publish Section Zero. But then he would say, but I cannot pay you any money to do it. And Tom and I just can't afford to do that. You know, we are not millionaires you know we got bills we got families and so kickstarter gives us enough money to pay our bills we're not taking trips to europe believe me pays our bills and then if we can 
then get, you know, like a little money off the image books. That's like a gift. We're just going to see if we can make it work. That's what we're doing. Well, to the listeners, if you haven't seen Section Zero yet, I like it a lot. So you should check it out. I know I'm going to be picking it up. And I'm just looking at the cover of issue number two, which I just love that cover. And the headline is on this, Protecting Mankind from Everything That Doesn't Exist. So that should whet your appetite. Now, your current Kickstarter, this is the important thing now, Impossible Jones. Now, the artist on that book, David Hahn, I had him on the show. We were talking $6 million man at the time. Oh, I did not know that he had been on. Yes, yes, he's been on. He did mention this book, as a matter of fact, this uh, Kickstarter. Tell me about this character, Impossible Jones, who's a little bit of Harley Quinn, whom you've worked on, and Plastic Man, and about her powers that we'll discover in this book. There's two things that came together in my head. One is... And, and I'll just be honest about it. I actually woke up one day and said, I know how to make Plastic Man work, at least for me. The idea is if you're a thief and something happens to you, you're on a job and something happens to you and you get powers and you wake up, the first thought you have is not, I will go out and fight crime. No, the first thought you have is I'm going to get payback on that gang that left me behind for dead. <laughs> that's your first thought. <laughs> and that's what Impossible Jones does. And so she, you know, something horrible happens. She's on a job. Something horrible happens. She gets uh, powers instead of dying. And she decides, those sons of bitches that left me here to die, I'm going to go get them. The thing is, from the outside looking in, she's, she's going after criminals. And so someone says, you must be a superhero. And being a wanted criminal, she says, yeah, I'm a superhero. That's where the story starts more or less. Quite honestly, that's a huge part of wanting to do this. And the other part of wanting to do this was, quite honestly, I loved writing Harley Quinn. She was a really energetic, fun character, and I wanted to do a similar character again. And those two ideas kind of come together and become Impossible Jones. And if I understand correctly, for the backers, when this campaign ends, they're all going to get a PDF of issue number one, kind of an introduction to the character while you're finishing this up. We did try to kickstart this once before as a floppy, as a, you know, as a 32-page comic. I pulled the plug on that because it seemed clear to me that we were not going to make it. And the bottom line is I couldn't spend a month of my life trying to promote a book that wasn't going to pay my bills. So the first issue is all done. It is finished. And a vast majority of the second quote-unquote issue is all done. But now, of course, we're talking chapter one, chapter two in the graphic novel. But yes, because issue one is done, as soon as we're funded, well, I don't want to say as soon as we're funded, but as soon as the campaign is over, very shortly after that, we will deliver PDFs of that first issue to everybody and they can see. And the first issue is a 27-page story. Uh, That's the other great thing about Kickstarter is you don't have to do a 20-page story like you do for Marvel or DC. We started with a 20-page script, but it became 27 by the time we were done. But that's what we needed to tell the story right. And so that's what we're going to do. We're doing the story right. And David, of course, you know, his work is so great. He's worked on Batman 66, Batman meets Wonder Woman 77. And there are in the Kickstarter as rewards pages of art that look like they're flying out the door. Yeah, yeah. We sold uh, a whole bunch of those already. We do, you know, we're almost out of the ones, you know, we, we pulled a bunch out that we said, well, we can we can put these up as rewards because I did ink him on Batman uh, 66, Wonder Woman 77. And uh, but the pile of pages we pulled out here are almost all gone. I mean, I think we have well, we have one pencils, one inks, a matched pair of pencils and inks available on the Kickstarter right now. And and I think we might have one or two pages of inks after that. But I think the pencils and matched pair sets are gone at this point. 
Get them while you can. You do have skin in the game with this campaign because I understand that when you successfully complete a Kickstarter, it gets funded, you get a tattoo. Yeah, I, uh, I decided to do that with the first Section Zero and the second Section Zero, and I, uh, I will do it with Impossible Jones. I want to do it with Impossible Jones. We're almost at 50% funding while you and I are talking, so we got three more weeks to get that other 50%, and then I can get a tattoo. And I, I've got an idea that I do like kind of a, a classic like heart-shaped tattoo on my shoulder, but with Impossible Jones in the middle of it, and then like with a banner that says Impossible across it or something. <laughs> so it would actually be a really classic sort of tattoo image. Now, do you have a, a tattoo parlor all lined up, one that you trust and go to for all your tattoos? Uh, yes, I actually uh, use Lucky Maloney out of um, Anatomy Tattoo here in Portland, Oregon. It's important to have a good tattoo shop and a good artist. And Lucky is a great guy, a great artist. I have no problem giving him my business and giving him a recommendation if anyone is in Portland and wants a tattoo. Now, about the campaign, the postage is going to be determined after the campaign ends because you're being very careful to make sure that it's correct. You don't want to put yourself in the red because sometimes that happens with some Kickstarters. Oh. People don't have enough experience and they fall short on that what they should have for postage and then they just take a beating. I took a beating on the first section zero, believe me. Believe me. The, the shipping books to Europe and mm. Asia. I mean, the cost of shipping those books to Asia was like 40 bucks and I only got $25 for the book. Oh. It was brutal. It was brutal. And um, I had seen that this was being done with uh, board games an awful lot, where the, the postage was being charged afterwards. In the case of board games, as things are added, a lot of times they would be like pewter figures, you know, to use in the board game and stuff. And that, of course, changes the weight of the package dramatic, which changes the postage dramatically. So in the board game corner of the Kickstarter universe, uh, people are very used to paying postage after the campaign is over. In the comics section, the comics corner of the Kickstarter universe, people are not so used to that. If I have to guess how many people are in Asia who are going to order this book and then add that on to the goal that I need to raise, and how many people in Spain, and you know, there's no way to guess that properly, no way. And so do I overestimate, and then I, then I set a goal that maybe we don't make, and then I kick myself, oh, if I'd made my goal $4,000 less, we could... But this takes all the guesswork out. People will pay the same amount they would have if I'd said postage was 10 bucks for United States for the book. So you get a $25 book and you have to pay 35. Uh, you know, people wouldn't have had a problem with that. They're still going to pay that same amount. In fact, they might probably pay less because we'll know exactly how much postage is going to cost. And that's what we will charge. You've learned. And that's uh, that's important to your success. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying not to bankrupt my family by... <laughs> Pursuing my dream here. <laughs> and stretch goals. You have stretch goals. And, you know, I just want to remind people that if you've made a pledge for a Kickstarter like this one and you learn about something else, oh, I like that, you can up your pledge if you want before it closes and take oh, advantage yeah. of the stretch goals. So don't forget that. No, you can you can always give us more money. That's not a problem. And we do have, you know, you can always upgrade from just the book to the book with the signed book plate. You can upgrade. We have a few sketches that David and I are going to do still available. Not many, but there's still a few. Um, still a few pages of original art. And quite honestly, and I'm, I have to say I'm surprised that it's still available. You could be a henchman. We, we have three slots for henchmen and only one is gone. You could wear a snazzy outfit, you know, serve a criminal mastermind in a scheme against, I don't know, at least a city, maybe the world. I, I, I have to say I'm shocked that people haven't just jumped all over the chance to be a henchman. That's, that would be the first thing I would do if I was supporting this campaign. 
is be a henchman. Yeah, I know. That is surprising because Ron does the same thing for his, for Trekker. He'll draw people into a story. He has a an extra story in there that he actually draws in backwards at that level. So that's, right. a, that's a great idea. Yeah. I, in Section Zero, each book we have uh, so far, I don't know if I can keep this up forever, but in the first two books, I knew I had a spot for a member of the team who sadly was not going to survive. You know, we offered those up as, as uh, reward levels and um, they were gone in minutes because you know, one person in each book, you could be a member of Section Zero. You know, I promise that you're probably going to die horribly, but people don't seem to mind that. So, <laughs> And the Kickstarter is going to end, what would you say, July 2nd, is that right? Yes, July 2nd, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So uh, that would be 10 o'clock on the East Coast of America. All right. So, folks, please check it out. I mean, if you haven't heard my interview with David Hahn, listen to that. You've heard this one. And definitely you want to check into this and Section Zero too. But, you know, this is a great Kickstarter to back. And I'm in. So I hope you're in too. Great. Well, thank you very much, Chris. And I, and I would say, you know, if people are listening to this and also interested in Section Zero, there is a level, a reward level code from Zero to Impossible where you get both books. You get the first Section Zero book and the Impossible Jones book. So, and I, and I have to say, we sold, I don't know, something like 50 of those. So those are people obviously not exposed to Section Zero, but interested. So we're trying to accommodate everybody here. Now, this is the part of the show that makes it what it is, Creator Talks. It's called Kicking Back with the Creator. We're asked questions about you, to learn more about you as a person. It can involve comics. It can involve your art. It doesn't have to. It doesn't matter. It's just to get okay. to know you better. So my first question what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Mostly what I do when, when I'm not writing and drawing comics is uh, I'm taking care, care of my kids. I, and, I, and I do enjoy that tremendously. They're great kids. Uh, before I had kids, my hobby was cooking. I loved to cook and I still love to cook. I just cook a lot differently now that we have kids. What is your specialty? What do you mean? My specialty? The dish that you are best at making, your favorite? I don't know. Right now, right now, a big a big favorite that we do in the hot weather, like, you know, summer's coming up, is there's a, a very simple uh, fish sandwich that we make. It's got a, a like a jalapeno tartar sauce that I make that goes on it. And then there's a apple and bean sprout slaw that goes on the fish sandwich. It's really, really good. Oh, it sounds great. Uh, there used to be a small comic convention here in Portland run by Richard Finn, and uh, when he had his guests in for the fall show, for five or six years, every fall, he would bring his guests to my house and I would cook dinner for everybody. Richard liked it because instead of going to a hotel, or a restaurant, you know, people were in a, in a living room setting, a house setting. They could wander around. They could really talk easily. And then we could all sit down. And it was a meal that uh, beforehand I would find out who was coming. I would find out food allergies, dislikes, likes. It was like a game of Tetris trying to figure out what can I make that everyone is going to eat. And I really enjoyed that. And uh, then Richard would pay for the cost of the food and I would spend Saturday cooking and Saturday night people would show up like Howard Chaikin or Gene Ha and Mike Royer and we'd all sit down and, and have a great evening. Those were wonderful evenings, let me tell you. Any memories you can share? Any particular uh, story? All I can say is if you have dinner with Mike Royer, he's full of great stories. Mike Royer is one great story after another. He is. I met him at Heroes Con last year outside the show. He's quite the storyteller. He's quite he the guy. He's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's all I'll say. <laughs> Someone should do his biography because yes. you know, 
He's just been, you know, the, the fly on the wall in so many important moments in comics history. But, you know, I know, you know, one time uh, when Howard Chaikin was over, Kurt Busiek was also over with his wife, Anne, and we were sitting there and we were talking and we we're talking about food. And I said, Howard, I remember when you used to put uh, recipes in your American flag comic. And Kurt said, you know, the first meal I ever cooked for my wife, Anne, was Howard's frittata recipe from the American flag comic. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was a great story, yeah. Well, my next question, thinking back, what was your favorite birthday? What was it about it? I, you know, I can't tell you my favorite birthday, but uh, I'm going to tell you my favorite Christmas. Okay. I actually, you know, my eyes glanced over. I have a, a little glyph on my computer screen of a picture of me when I was six or seven years old at, at this Christmas, because this was the year Captain Action came out. And I wanted Captain Action so badly. And my dad was not going to have a son who had a doll. <laughs> he forbid Captain Action in his house. And the thing is, Christmas Eve, every single Christmas Eve, we would go and get together with my father's side of the family. And he, he has a very, you know, I have many, many cousins. And so his side of the family is very large. And uh, we were at uh, Uncle Bob and Aunt Gloria's house. I remember whose house it was at that, at that year. And we all opened up our presents, blah, blah, blah. And the very last present was to me from my grandmother, from my dad's mother. And I start opening it. And all of a sudden, I see the Captain Action logo. And I go crazy. And this picture of me, it's a blur. And all you can see is this sheer joy on my face. It was Captain Action. And, you know, Dad couldn't yell at his own mom. <laughs> My wife, Myrna, she loves that picture. It's her favorite picture of me when I was a kid. Oh, man, that joy as a kid when you get a present like that. When I was a kid, I had action figures. And my thing was the G.I. Joes, the full-size G.I. Joes. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. love that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you think back to middle school, when you were a teenager, what favorite posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? <sighs> well, let me see. You know, I know later in life, but this was when I was in college because it didn't come out until I was college. I had the Dawn of the Dead poster on my wall. I, I'm, I'm a huge Romero zombie fan and have been ever since I saw Day of the Dead. But that was that's later. Earlier than that, I know I, this probably falls in your, your time period. I had some Marvel Blacklight posters on my wall. I, you know, I had those, you know, Dayglow posters mm -hmm. out in like the late 60s and 70s. I had Conan. I had Black Bolt. Um, I know I had the Fantastic Four. I had a Daredevil one, too. I, and those were on my walls for many years, many years. After Howard the Duck came out, Frank Bruner did a uh, kind of like a Howard the Duck gangster painting poster. And I had that on my wall for many, many years also. Those blacklight posters are hard to find now, I think, right? Yeah, they, they are. I actually, though, in my, my studio, I, I tracked down, and this was 20 years ago now, I did track down a blacklight Black Bolt and a blacklight Medusa poster, and I've got those framed and on my wall in my studio. Nice. Very nice. What kind of music were you listening to at that time, too? You mean like when I was a teenager? Mm -hmm. We didn't have a lot of music in our house growing up. I didn't listen to a lot of music until I was in college, quite honestly. I mean, I actually remember one time when my cousins came over to visit in the summer, and they had like a transistor radio with them, and they were playing, you know, this top 40 station, and they played this really great tune called Downtown, and I loved it. I thought, what a great song. This song called Downtown is such a great song. Three or four weeks later, they come over again, and they play their transistor radio, and they never played the song Downtown. 
it was just wasn't being played anymore. And I, I couldn't understand how such a great song like that had just stopped being played. So, um, but I, you know, until I got into college, I really didn't listen to a lot of music. Now, here's a, um, a question about a hypothetical situation. You're stuck on a deserted island. Okay. And you can only have one book with you. It can be a comic. It can be paperback. It could be a collection of books that are somehow all related. It doesn't have to be practical. Just something that you want to read for fun. Take your mind off the situation. What would be that book? Boy, that's a tough question. The Smithsonian Collection of Comic Strips. That's what I... <laughs> the entire thing. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's a huge telephone book of a book. I've got a copy. Oh, really? Okay. But, but I mean, this they put this out in, I don't know, the 70s or something like that. And it's, you know, it's, it's an oversized book. It's a size or bigger than, you know, like the uh, absolute editions that, that uh, DC puts out now. It's got to be two inches thick. It's a hardcover. But it's an overview of the history of the comic strip up to, I mean, whenever they put it out. And uh, they've got really good samples of Seeger's Popeye and Terry and the Pirates and Scorchy Smith and Johnny Hazard and Dick Tracy and Gasoline Alley, uh, Little Abner and uh, Little Orphan Annie and all of the great classics. And some really weird ones like Old Doc Yak, which is a really bizarre comic strip. I, you know, I bought that book when I was going to the Cupid School, because we'd go into the New York City and I would go to the Strand Bookstore and that's where I got it. And it's a great overview of the history of the comic strip, uh, you know, for the first three quarters of this 20th century. I could easily spend hours going over that book again and again and again. Another hypothetical situation. Image says, we're going to make an action figure of you. Ah! Not Captain Action, but one of you. <laughs> what would be your accessory? Ooh, what would be my accessory? Boy, I think that is a good question. Hmm. It could be, you know, cooking utensils or a pot, pots and pans. I do spend a lot of time in the kitchen. The the idea of drawing materials or a computer that's that's not very interesting. Um, yeah, I I, you know, I don't know that the cooking stuff is the only thing that comes to mind right now. That that's a stumper. I'm a, I'm kind of stumped by that. Okay, so perhaps a spatula. Spatula or a nice all clad pan. Let's say an all clad pan. Okay. <laughs> That would also be handy in fighting off zombies. That's right. (laughs) Now, back to reality. What is your beverage of choice? Well, I mean, I drink water mostly. But at night, I usually sit down to have a beer or maybe a hard cider or something like that. Uh, And right now, I'm going through a phase where I really like sour beers. So Yeah, they've really taken off. A lot of places carry those now. Yeah. Yeah, sour beers are are my go-to right now. What is the oddest job? you've ever had and I mean outside of comics I mean something else you were doing to pay the bills either to support yourself or later when you had a family to support a family what's the oddest job you had I haven't had many jobs you know I went from college to a year doing production work in a typesetting shop and then I started working in comics and that's what I've done ever since I did when I was younger. My dad had a lawn mowing service and I was his assistant. Quite honestly, to this day, I mow my lawn the way my dad taught me how to mow those lawns. And, and I'm very critical of other people, how they mow their lawns. Really, the only other job I, I, I had was one summer I worked for a, a marine supply company, meaning they would take stuff to marinas, you know, the parts you would buy for your boat, the stuff you would need, the little bumpers to keep your boat from bumping up against the deck, the dock. And I don't know if that was a bizarre job, but it was an interesting job because I got in this delivery truck and I went from marina to marina all around the Great Lakes in upstate New York. I saw some beautiful boats, some beautiful wooden boats, believe me, and saw some really interesting characters. They're very interesting people that hang out in marinas. (laughs) (laughs) What's so interesting about them? What was it about those people? 
Well, uh, in many cases, they, they were drunk. <laughs> there was one marina that the people that ran it, I, I can't believe they stayed in business long because they were always drunk when I showed up. And this was not late in the day. Believe oh, <laughs> liquid lunch. <laughs> yeah, liquid lunch. They seem to be having a very good time. My final question is, what is your favorite comic character that someday you want to work on? You just haven't had a chance yet. You know, I've worked on most of them. You know, I mean, my very favorite book at Marvel is Fantastic Four. My very favorite book at DC is The Challengers of the Unknown. I've got to dabble with both of them. I've never had a chance to really do a run on either. I would not say no to either of those. But uh, but I mean, I have to say, and this is, you know, in all honesty, I, I've had 30, 35 years of playing in, in Marvel and DC sandbox, and I've had a very good time. And right now, I'm mostly excited about doing my stuff, my stuff with people like Tom Grummet and David Hunt and Section Zero and Impossible Jones. And I got an idea in the back of my pocket called Saint Mayhem that I want to pull out pretty soon. And uh, this is the sandbox I really want to play in right now. But you can't ask for more than that, to be able to do exactly what you want to do with your properties and with the people you want to work with. That's perfect. Yeah. So that campaign for Impossible Jones ends on July 2nd, so don't delay. Act fast. It's going to close soon. It's a great book. Check it out. Please go visit on Kickstarter. Just search Impossible Jones. Carl, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. Oh, well, thank you, Chris. It's been wonderful talking to you. Well, that's the show for this week. Thank you for joining me. This show is out every other week, and it's available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, voice-enabled devices, and now on Spotify. Please subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can follow the show on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And on Saturdays and Sundays, I post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. And you, please share yours and tell me why you love them so much. You know, if you have a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes. Maybe it's Apple Podcasts now. I don't know. They're changing everything. But please rate and review if you have a chance. And you know the most important thing? Word of mouth. Tell a friend. Tell someone who likes comics. They'll tell a friend who likes comics. That's how the word spreads. Have guests you want to hear? Let me know. You can reach me directly through today's snail mail email, contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com if you want to send me some feedback or a longer message. Otherwise, social media. And Twitter is probably the best way. Follow me and DM me. Just saying, that's where I hang out the most. And as I said, I'm working on upcoming guests. I have a lot lined up. Keep an eye out on social media at Creator Talks Pod. Just follow me. You'll see who's coming up in advance. You can also go to my website, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. There I will post on the homepage who's coming up. You can also see lists of previous guests, links to the landing page with their episode, including show notes and links to their properties, projects, and to make it a little easier for you to leave a review, I have a link to my podcast page so you can leave that star rating or review much appreciated anyway thank you again so much for joining me i hope you enjoy your comic books spend time with your family get outside have some fun get outdoors do something but read comics and keep collecting and hey read a variety it's the spice of life feed your mind and your soul for creator talks I'm Christopher Calloway. 
until next time.